Hello there, and thank you for tapping into this episode of Bandwidth Coast to Coast. This conversation covers a healthy amount of ground, and unintentionally dovetails quite well with the previous episode on the Chinese government's external propaganda. This one, though, is with returning guest, Rowan Price. Rowan is an internet nomad currently living in the EU, and is generally a wealth of knowledge and everything modern history, literature, politics, and much, much more. Some might remember him from episode two, where I interview him about his experience living and working near the World Trade Center in 2001. In this installment, though, we start off chanting about consciousness after Rowan plays some linguistic judo with my typical question to guests about their happiness, and after we play around a bit with what is or is not a summation of who you are as a being, we chit-chat about the establishment media's propaganda and narratives that emerge in times of crisis, dive a bit into the Romans and the propaganda brilliance of Julius Caesar by way of Pax Americana as a means of American imperialism. Before talking about modern nation-states, the rise of corporations, and ending on a bit of a cliffhanger, where we only initiate a conversation about Web3, when I unfortunately had to cut the conversation short. But don't be worried, there's a second installment coming very soon. Thank you, Rowan, for coming on the show, and thank you all for listening. Real quick before the episode begins, if you like what you hear, please tap that follow or subscribe button. You also can find this episode, all episodes in the series, or check out our daily minute podcast by visiting us at bandwidth.productions. Hey, I can say hey now. <laughs> well, thank you for taking the time again, Rowan. I'm in, stoked to to chat again. I'm it's always stoked honor. to chat with you. Um, I didn't ask like you this last time, so I'm going to kick it off, which is the question I usually really? ask the first time people join, which is, what do you like to do that makes you happy? Oh, see, I, I'm not qualified to answer this question because I've listened to your podcast too many times, so... <laughs> I, I know that I know the cheat codes. You know what's coming, my, so you already my, thought about it. <laughs> well, no, I just, I just, um, I think I, uh, yes, I've already thought about it. But the problem is that I was already influenced by one of the previous guests' answers because you had a guest who said, I think he just kind of reframed the question and said, "What's what is happiness? Does it exist, and is it valuable?" And then I think you kind of settled on something more like contentment or experience as being having more virtue than, than happiness. And uh, I think I'm there too. I think um, um, one of the, one of the uh, really uh, easy to remember catchy uh, wise statements from Joseph Campbell was because he, he was that the, the answer to the, the meaning of life is to experience the rapture of being. And we talked about that before. I think we talked about that, right? I'm not sure where we, we talked so about that, but 
I'm not sure if we if we chatted about it or talked about it verbally, but we talked about experiencing the rapture of being. And then we kind of unpacked it and unfolded it into something bigger than that and decided that he really compressed a lot into that statement. But I mean, <laughs> that's kind of a that's kind of a rounded that's that's like a close answer. Like experiencing the rapture of being, that's the closest I've come to how I become happy or how I be happy or whatever happiness means. Where are you when that happens? Um, you know, that's the cool thing is that you could be in the most mundane place. Like you could be in a dentist's office reading a back issue of People magazine and you could be experiencing, you could be experiencing the rapture of being. <laughs> so it's just, which is kind of nice because it's, it's flexible that way. You don't, you know, you don't have to be um, riding a, a killer wave in Costa Rica or something on a surfboard. <laughs> <laughs> you could, a back issue of people magazine in a dentist office <laughs> that's great if you can find contentment and if you if you can be experiencing the rapture of being alive while reading through whatever jennifer aniston was doing last a couple months ago um i think that that is you, you've you've reached it you might as well just like call it a day <laughs> well yeah you might you, you maybe you've reached like you know the Tem temporary enlightenment well you know this is something i've been thinking about a lot lately and like the way that we in the west talk about enlightenment it's it's actually so uh backwards because we almost seem like it's the final destination it's like oh you become enlightened and then you know you're you're done like that's the peak you know peak uh consciousness or whatever you however you want to define that um, when really it's that you just experience the world for what it is and accept it. Mm -hmm. And that's just the start. It's like you become enlightened and then it's like, yeah, you got a ways to go still, man. You now just, op you, you were finally able to open the door and keep it open. Um, exactly. When I, when I first heard the term temporary enlightenment, when I, I, had, I had the boot, I did a course when I was a teenager because I had a teacher who was really into it. And I thought it was the footnote or like an interesting detail but later in life, I realized maybe that it wasn't, maybe that's the kind of core of it. Is the core of it is that you go through cycles of not just experiencing enlightenment, but even experiencing insight or contentment. And you fall out of them, unfortunately, and you have to fight back in or get back in or fall back in. You have to, you have to accept that you know, a more cyclical nature of reality, I think, even if for something as cool as enlightenment. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. I was talking with a friend of mine uh, recently and he was saying like source, like the concept he's, he's, uh, he grew up native, on uh, a native American reservation uh, and he's uh, Choctaw. Um, so his mm -hmm. like talking of source and spirituality and things like that's like, it sometimes I guess at face value, if you didn't know that context, it may sound like an Instagram influencer, but when he talks about it, like he has mm -hmm. a much deeper connection to this. It's he's meaning a lot more than even I could understand and, and uh, really grasp while he's expressing. But he said to me recently, he's like, yeah, well, you know, like source moves. And I was like, huh? He's like, yeah, yeah. It's like never fixed. He's like, you know, like the, I guess what, what some people would call God or like the, the universal channeling of a, from another realm or something like that. Um, and he was expressing mm -hmm. how it, you know, it, it moves around. Um, and then when I ended up like having a thought on later and, and asking him about which he confirmed, 
is really what it means is like that inspiration that comes and goes from you and, and fluctuates is, is kind of part of this ever expanding, moving, you know, shifting type of consciousness that uh, is all connected to everything where you kind of realize that universal I'm different and the same as everything around me and everything around me is dependent is as much as, you know, connected to me. Yeah. That, you know, that mushroom trip kind of uh, <laughs> feel. Yeah. That's a, so, such a great way to frame it. Source moves. First of all, it's so, it's so succinct. It's two words. The first word makes you rethink what God or I think the term, the great spirit, which is a traditional label in English for that kind of, um, set that kind of the native american belief systems that's so well certain sects because it's very very big and different oh right sure so yeah so then there again you hard to paint paint like all these different cultures with the same brush but just the term my point is the term the great spirit is a like cartoonish kind of term at this point um so (laughs) because it's used in that way so i love i love the word choice source that's 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 really but it's really, it's a really interesting like point to make that it moves to it's kind of shifts like that. Yeah. If you can like hold on to it without having too much baggage and judgment. Right. Cause it sounds, it sounds kind of out there and, and goofy. If you're in your logical brain, like you're telling me that there's a, yeah. a spirit that's following me around and connecting me to everything. And how am I connected to everything? Like, what the hell are you talking about? But something I've been thinking about with that is like how, narrow of a band when we define consciousness and like the baggage that the word consciousness has in you know anglo-american life let me put it that way instead of even saying west um Mm -hmm. is very small it's really just like it really just means human thought human ideas human capabilities like that's what we are really meaning when we say consciousness when in reality like there's might be your consciousness and like what your thoughts arise to you is a summation of everything that you've experienced and everything that's alive within you. So think of like muscle memory of like, you know, flinching or something like that, that that's like, that's a part of your consciousness. You feel that you feel the aftershock of that, but really the aftershock shock of adrenaline that you're feeling is really just a result of your connection of your tissues and your muscles and fast twitch fibers that are like jolting you. And then you're experiencing a second mm-hmm. later. And then even further, that's even a better example. If you ask me, is like if you start eating a lot of sugar, your gut biome starts becoming addicted to it and it starts propagating off of eating that. So those sugar cravings that you get is actually your gut biome like demanding that you eat more and feed it what it's used to right now, which is really the consciousness. Oh, it's of like, those a, it's like an animal dying. Yes, right. Exactly. Or an animal afraid of dying or about to die because it's not getting the food that it, it relies on. Right. Which is means that there's little micro, micro speaking. Yes. There's little micro organisms that are screaming from their consciousness, feed me a Snickers bar. And you're getting that. Yeah. And you're running. Who can can blame them? That's what you've, you've been feeding. (laughs) That's what you've been feeding them. It makes sense. That's so interesting though, that that's, that is a manifestation of consciousness, like little beings in your body, like sending signals to you, like, they represent themselves as pain that are based in wanting to, wanting a Snickers bar. Right. Damn. But we don't think of it yeah. as consciousness. And like, I'm sure people have heard this before too. Like, oh yeah, yeah. Like if you, those sugar cravings are really like your gut biome and things like that. Like, I, you know, I've, I've heard that before, like offhandedly, 
but more recently I've been making the connection. It's like, oh my God, that's actually consciousness. Like, you know, like it's maybe a thin band of consciousness of which they only understand like in their most immediate environment. And, you know, like Mm -hmm. the thoughts that arise from them aren't, you know, put into words, obviously. Um, And maybe they are only because of the interfaces that they have with the world. Maybe they don't have like sight or sound or things like that. Or maybe they have like something else like electromagnetic sense, sense, senses and sensibilities. Like we know fish have, you know, maybe it has another band of senses that we don't have. Um, and we couldn't understand how it experiences that, but it has consciousness. I mean, come on. I mean, fungus will expand in certain predictable ways, um, you know, following certain patterns and it clearly prefers some things and dislikes other things and, you know, will produce things in order to ward things off. I mean, it's all, it's thinking. It has to be thinking, right? Yeah, it is. It is a form form of thought and it's a form of reacting to the world and, What's also interesting about the whole paradigm that you're setting out here is that we're in terms of gut, gut, you know, your gut biome is that we think, we think of those things as us, like you're saying, like we think of that as part of, but obviously that you can, you could say from the, from a rational perspective, from the biological biologist perspective, you can say, well, that certainly a different creature, different living being than you, you just happen to live in the same in, in proximity. <laughs> so like your consciousness becomes uh what it becomes you whatever that is plus um millions or thousands of other beings that live really close to you that's that's what a so-called consciousness is which speaks to the interconnection of things is it plus or is it equals um is it is is your conscious what what do you mean this is what plus is your consciousness plus is the microbiome of your gut and your consciousness at plus or is it equals because here's the thing you need that you 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 wouldn't survive if you had none of those same things that are screaming to you for sugar if you had none of them you wouldn't physically biologically survive and Mm. how much of what your thoughts that arise with you are like are they is that different or is it a sum? Is the summary of all of those who you are? Because also, like, think of pain. So, like, right now, mm-hmm. my calves really hurt me, and I can't stop thinking about how my calves hurt me. Is that separate from me, or is that equaling me? And then, in which case, is the muscles in my calves, which are little cells, screaming, different, or a part of? Yeah, I mean, that's. I think for our intents and for our purposes, like in continuing this metaphor, it seems like the pain in your calf is um, equals, whereas the gut biome is plus, and that you know plus means it's something, it's you plus something else. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah, that's what I think it is. I think it's um, I think it's like a group. It's like a big group of creatures, and you're one of those creatures, and together you're helping your your body survive um by by um having the right impulses to, to take in the right substances to keep your your life happening you know to keep your <laughs> keep keep your calorie intake happening and and so on um your That's calorie your sugar and all other stuff you need to need to survive is the reason that you say that one is equal and the other is plus because of the 
interface between the cells. So like in your muscles and your leg has a tight interface, even though those individual cells are different and serve their own, you know, uh, mechanisms to survive in such the same way as those little microbiomes. But the difference with microbiomes is the interface with you is chemical at like yeah. a more further degree. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, totally. It's, I'm making a completely arbitrary distinction. You could definitely make, you could definitely um, set the marker between what is you and what is another being in, in a different place. And you could easily make the argument that the cells themselves are separate beings from you. They're living things and they are not necessarily you. They just happen to like be a part of you, but they're, they're, they're their own entities with their own experiences of the universe so in that certainly yeah i made an arbitrary distinction because we give the name biomes when we think of um we just we we can you know we can we can kind of picture little creatures living in the gut but we don't picture creatures living in our muscle tissue but certainly you you can and i'm i think it's interesting to play with where you set the boundary between what is you and what is creatures that make up you and comprise you i guess yeah which is really what i'm i'm just poking around with uh totally it's been this is fun uh the last thing i'll say with this just before uh we can move on is that eventually every single cell in your body will be replaced right right so yeah uh yeah that's interesting too right so it's like Um, if every part of you is replaced but your consciousness lives on what is it? And I, I see personally, I, I think it's the summary. I think it's the summation of everything around you or everything inside of you biologically, because all of that influences your thought patterns, how you think, where you think, what arises, all of that. Um, and it's all an interface within you. So the, it comprises you. And then I think in much the same way, you're influenced in a different way with the external world is in some way a part of your consciousness, unless you're able to arise over it so again what i mean by that is like if you're in a room with a bunch of people who are nervous it's going to be really hard for you not to all of a sudden have nervous anxious energy right like they influence you like there's an there's an interface with that (laughs) in a similar way to the you know screaming for sugar in your gut um and unless you can like you know get to the point of being able to make the distinction um and you know kind of that frame of contentment or finding bliss reading a people magazine um, once you could do that, then the interface with the outside world is, is a little different, but I think until you're able to reach that state, it's, it's almost like the outside world is a part of your consciousness rather tightly. Right. If, if you can continue this yeah. esoteric <clears throat> metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 No, that's, that's, uh, there's, there's a, that's, that's a, that's a, it's a really important subject. Let me just say that. So I, I think I, I'm, I'm glad that you probed it so much because it's really important to think about what we're made of and how we're connected to other things and to and to question the idea that we are separate from one another and separate from other things in the universe. Um, I think a lot of a lot of our problems come from making those arbitrary distinctions, like the one I made, you know, between uh, cells that create pain in your tissue and, and uh, gut biomes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the part that I find interesting about that is because if you get to that point, 
then all of a sudden the interface between two different people starts to become a little different. And then the understanding of those two different people and what thoughts and, you know, emotions arise with them, which then changes their locomotion and how they interact with the world around them. Um, I personally think that it starts to arise more empathy, you know, or at least that's usually what I'm aiming mm -hmm. for is to have more empathy for people and a deeper understanding, um, especially in the mixed up, messed up world of today. <laughs> Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, look at, look at, um, you know, it's just, this is um, changing the course of our conversation a little bit, but we have a war going on and we have, we have enmity propagated between people that aren't even in, involved in the war directly at all. So maybe, maybe for example, could be a, a citizen, a normal person who is a, uh, you know, working in a, in a dentist's office in in Russia, and another person who's working in a dentist's office in somewhere in the United States, and they really could be like fairly empathic with one another because they both have to work in a dentist's office, and you know look at the same old four month old People magazines um, or whatever they read there in Russia. So um, yeah, I think it's there's something to it that can be applied in our material world. Yeah, definitely. I wish I wish I knew the there's word for people. For oh, there's always room for empathy, I think. And I wish I knew the word for people uh, magazine in Russian. Um, the only thing I would add to that is that there's many wars going on. Right. You said there's a war going on mm -hmm. and there's actually many wars going on. I mean, Ethiopia is in a pretty, pretty terrible civil war going on right now. Uh, the one that I always bring yeah. up is Yemen, because the reason I bring that up is because it's the only war that um, potentially we as Americans um, can stop instantly with nothing more than a, a phone call uh, saying, yo, stop giving mm -hmm. logistical support and uh, intelligence to the Saudis. Then all of a sudden that war in Yemen, which is resulting in a, a famine that's been going on since 2014. So imagine that a famine, like you're watching people starve to death, um, which is always children first because children demand the most amount of calories um, and even the most mm -hmm. uh, broad nutrition so there's there's many wars going on it just seems that there's only one right. that we should be caring about and because there's only one that we should be caring about um the propaganda seems to be steering us in such a way to um i don't know, rally and praise the war and in some places rather blatantly saying that we should praise the prospect of a nuclear conflict um which <laughs> baffles me yeah which is astounding yeah I mean, it's just an astounding form of a death wish. I mean, it's just really. It's, well, it's I, think more than, I think both political parties are death cults. I think both political parties are death cults. I mean, I mean they just they just praise war and want access and everything. It's 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 really it's really outrageous. Yeah, I mean, it's um, yeah, it's 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 become so. Uh, so much a part of in the last two months, last month, it's become such a like a basic assumption that the war is good and it's the war in the U Ukraine is inevitable. That's the big problem: is that the assumption that it's inevitable. That's been which is which was, was false, and the assumption that it needs to continue inevitably. Also a horrible assumption embraced by both political parties in the US. 
for the most part um, with horrible consequences. Completely agree. It's just, it, it's just, it's just amazing to me that not ending, not doing everything you can to end the war is not the first objective. Set <laughs> setting aside yes. not inviting the potential of a large conventional war or even a nuclear war, but even a larger conventional war between the U.S. and Russia would be a, a catastrophe. Between a NATO and Russia would be a catastrophe. But just, just what? Just look at the difference. I looked at the difference between CNN.com homepage and the um, Ankara Daily, which is the biggest, or the Istanbul Daily, which is the biggest um, circulation newspaper in Turkey, which is uh, no country is neutral, but they're kind of playing this neutral role because they kind of have their, they have alliances with both sides and they are helping to broker the peace talks. And it's just a huge difference. I mean, you've, on the, in the Istanbul Daily, you've got, okay, we're, today we talked about X, Y, and Z with regards to peace. This is the offer from this side. This is the offer from the other side. That's something. And like, progress is made because often then there's been progress made on many, many days in the last month towards peace talks. And then CNN, it's like Zelensky in a dramatic pose um, saying that if the, if the peace deal isn't met soon, it's going to be World War III. <laughs> it's like, it's quite a contrast. You know, actually, I, I wanted to bring this up, so I'm glad that you did, which is the other thing that I think is a glaring um, it's just being glaringly allowed and not questioned is that we're allowing only one side to speak and we're allowing, and we're, we're literally getting up and clapping and praising, you know, the only side that we're allowed to speak being Zelensky as demanding us to pull ourselves more in with more military aid, as opposed to saying, use your strength and power as, you know, the, United States empire and end the war through peace, help us end through peace. Instead, it's, you know, get involved in a war with only your air force first, which is what a no fly zone is. And then mm -hmm. send us more javelins and technology, um, which is startling to me because I think, you know, the unheard and Michael Tracy both had great articles um, just recently about saying that this is really because the United States is not suing for peace um and you know further cutting ties and i mean now there's talks of janet yellen and a bunch of these senators wanting to freeze russian gold reserves in the united states which is terrible and will fracture the entire banking system and economic system we have in the world today more than it already is with the weaponization of swift um but it was talking about how the united states is clearly going for regime change and that's what they want in russia which is like our yeah. foreign policy mo which is what we did in the ukraine is in 2014 we encouraged a regime yeah. change um so it's startling to me and it's starting to me how obvious it is and how obvious the propaganda around it is like calling the gas prices putin's price hike and bringing in tiktok influencers <laughs> to spread the propaganda it's like it's literally obvious, yeah, right you know it's glaring yeah, let's, let's obvious. listen to 17 year olds uh, advise us on on uh, international um, policy and war policy and issues which could 
if not dealt with properly, lead to mass starvation, mass financial uh, chaos, mass poverty, and nuclear war. I mean, well, at least one of those is going to happen. I mean, twenty-five percent of the world's um, wheat is grown in Russia and the Ukraine, and uh, majority yeah. of the world's fertilizer and fertilizer like byproducts, like uh, I think it's like. I don't know if it's, uh, I know it's urea is one of them. I only remember that because it's such a disgusting name. Um, but uh, it all comes from Russia and Russia is banning the export of fertilizer. Now, and I also mind you, That's like great. some mid- countries in the Middle East get 75% of their wheat from Ukraine. So in uh, Yemen is yeah. also starving, right? But think of like Egypt. Egypt, mm-hmm. Egypt used to be the breadbasket of the Roman Empire and for many empires, right? Well, now it gets That's the majority right. of its wheat imported um so, so right right yeah. and planting season in, in ukraine is like two weeks away so then there's no fertilizer exports right. like zero there's zero fertilizer exports from russia china has been hoarding all the grain for the past two years um bad drought in the united states and right you're not going to plant if the farmers are stealing tanks and having to worry about bombs which is what's happening um mm-hmm so we're, we're on, we're, I mean, it's going to be not good. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I see it. I, it's, it's kind of a Mexican standoff right now. Um, and it's, it's, it's a Mexican standoff between the U.S. establishment and a much smaller and much less powerful rival that is nevertheless powerful enough to stand off. And you could lose the standoff because they just had, it's just a fact they have, like you said, they have, um, they have food power. I mean, food is, food is the historically throughout world history. I would say that the, the number one thing that is in contention, you know, in, in terms of what governments contend for and sell and followed by, well, I would say staple food, which people need. And then, um, uh, kind of uh, discretionary, discretionarily consumed food, you know, luxury. I mean, I think, I think the ancient Greeks were selling olive oil to um, uh, the rest of the Mediterranean like 3,000 years ago. They didn't need it. They just wanted it. So Russia has that. I mean, they have, with fertilizer, they have the, the ability to supply a lot of the world's just, um, to kind of discretionary food. And that with wheat, they have a lot of staple food. It's available for purchase on the market. Um, like you're saying, um, they control a lot of gas. Uh, I know some people that live in uh, cities like Berlin that uh, keep warm at night because there's uh, Russian gas keeping them warm. Uh, so um, <laughs> there's a, they have a lot of leverage. It's not just military. And then, of course, the military leverage is enormous. I mean, it's... I, what you know what you know what gets me is I I'm learning I've always kind of been skeptical of anyone who well I've been I've always been skeptical of, of war in general um, and that goes back before the Iraq War I've always been skeptical of war I was skeptical of the first Iraq War when I was a teenager I went to a protest of it in 1991 in Portland Oregon because I thought it was a bad idea to start a war. And I just, that's just was what I'm, that was my thinking on it based on what I knew, little I knew about the world. And so it's not like, 
I'm surprised or shocked that the entire US government and mainstream media and establishment is so rapidly pro-war. But I, I guess I'm surprised by I'm surprised by the level of propaganda that is being it, it's 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 like a tidal wave that's being thrown at people so fast that you can't make sense of it. Like I just had someone I respect a lot who I I think of as someone who's always been against war in general, a non-self-defense war in general, who sent me an article published in uh, Amazon.com slash Washington Post, <laughs> aka the Washington <laughs> Post, <laughs> that uh, that. Kind of like it was. It was just such a. It was such. It was like the worst hit piece on Putin I've ever read. It was like moments after. First, I let off like claiming that he had this long, rambling, chaotic, nonsensical pre-invasion speech, and I was like, "Hmm, let's see about that," because I wasn't sure if that was true or not. So I went and looked it up, and the speech is only twenty-seven minutes, and I listened to it without a voiceover but with subtitles. So you could actually like think about what was being said and hear his inflections. And it wasn't rambling at all. He just laid out a really logical case for why he's doing what he's doing. And mind you, I'm I'm still generally opposed to, I'm I'm opposed to what he did. Like I just I think that unfortunately he should have sucked it up and had to deal with the consequences of having to suck it up, which I don't think is fair. But I think that's what he should have done because of the immediate human suffering that could have been avoided. So, but I understand why he did it. I mean, it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone that he did it. It was obvious. But this hit piece was like, it it just went right into this kind of like fantasy, almost like sci-fi fantasy Russian empire fantasist author named Dugin, who writes about the glorious Russian empire. That's It was like an Alex Jones rant. It was like the Russian empire is going to stretch from Dublin to Tokyo and it's going to finally unite Eurasia and bring like, yeah, it was just kind of like, and then the implication was that this is Putin's brain, but there's no evidence for that. The implication was that this person influences Putin. The implication is that Putin is, is a mad would-be conqueror that wants to take over the world. And I think that's, and of course, no evidence cited for it whatsoever. But that that's in the Washington Post, which is supposedly... Um, a newspaper of record, you know, the second most prestigious newspaper in the world's most powerful country after the New York Times, right? Like it's supposed to be, supposedly it's like a, a place for you, you read like reasonable and erudite editorials. It's basically just the worst hit piece on, in, on our, our enemy, essentially. So I'm surprised, John, I'm surprised. I'm actually a bit shocked by the level of propaganda throughout the Western world that I'm seeing right now. I, it really is catching me off guard, actually. Even after 9-11 and the war in Iraq, I, I'm still surprised by this. Well, saddle up and ride, because it's just starting. <laughs> <laughs> this should be fun. Well, this, this gives us the opportunity to experience the rapture being... <laughs> yeah, I guess. Yeah, Not well, this is the type of rapture I want. I feel no, I don't want to feel this. I feel like it's the exactly. Um, I feel like it's end times. Um, well, uh, 
you know, Michael Malice has this thing that he talks about that I like a lot. And he says, we're taught all about yellow journalism. And we're taught about how, you know, there was a time where, you know, journalists were spurring up hatred of Native Americans and, and uh, that genocide and, you know, the expansion into the West and, you know, inciting a war with Mexico, inciting a war with Spain, um, all of that. There was all this yellow journalism that was around and, you know, uh, we, we learned about that. And then there's a record scratch. And then all of a sudden with the war in Vietnam, we're supposed to just accept that the media is different and not a tool of the state. <laughs> yeah. um, when it's, you know, when right. the, you know, <clears throat> sure, maybe there was a point where the media turned on the war in Vietnam, but I mean, when Johnson shortly after taking office and getting sworn in after Kennedy was assassinated, just starts doubling and tripling our presence in Vietnam, it was somehow seen as a good thing in the news. So yeah, like, I think that there's this false sense that we think that the New York Times or just our, our mass media in general in the U.S. going back to even the 1850s has ever been anything different than what it is, which is a tool of propaganda yeah. for the status quo. Right. Um, and the status quo, you know, I don't think it's just the government. I think it's the people who try to influence the government who then become part of the government and then from their position in government influence, you know, use that power and that leverage. Um, so it's, it's, it's yeah. corporate, it's corporations in America. That's what it is now. Um, it hasn't always been that way, right? It's, you know, grown steadily since the early 1900s, but that's, you know, that's the status quo now, um, who run the mm -hmm. New York times and, and you know, obviously so blatantly with Washington post and it seems like every tech, uh, billionaire just, you know, buys their, uh, uh, little minted, uh, newspaper now with, you know, Salesforce, Mark Benioff owning time. Right. So like all, all they're all conglomerates of corporations, which is what they've always been. And then harkering back exactly. to manufacturing consent, you know, they've always been pushing a message like the, the extra, extra judicious uh, killings that were happening and, and wars that were supported with the Contras in you know, Central and South America. Right. I mean, like that was all supported by the New York Times. Um, I mean, but there's, a, there's a theatrical difference now, right? Like it's the emperor is like taking off his clothes and what 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 are you gonna do well it, it's it's, I, it's actually i think the analogy i think it was you that we were talking about this the other night i'm not sure where i said uh it's almost as if it's the wizard of oz but there's no curtain anymore and the wizard is still running Oz. Yeah. exactly exactly like it's it's um it's like um there's so many there's so many um actual former employees of the cia that are now brought on as analysts on one of the biggest cable news uh, channels, MSNBC. And there's so like, so you talked about um, Salesforce acquiring time and Amazon acquiring, uh, <clears throat> acquiring the Washington Post. They're founders, just to make a distinction. It wasn't the companies, it was the money from sales. So it was Mark Benioff and uh, Bezos. It wasn't. Salesforce and Amazon, just to make that distinction. Sure. Oh, yeah, right. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek when I say Amazon.com slash Washington Post. But I like that. And I'm going to use that. But I, I was just saying, for the sake of your argument, making the distinction. Can, please continue. Totally. So the the point I was going to make, and I this always like it, it bothered me when it, when I I noticed it in the aughts, and it feels like it just was just forgotten by the culture, but. MSNBC is micro literally Microsoft NBC. They literally, I know they, 
they, they funded half of it. They, they own half of the company. So it, this this model of like tech giant, and there's that there's that Mint Press News study that came out where this guy looked at open source information from the Gates Foundation. He basically looked at the uh, Gates.org website where they disclosed their um, their grants and found what, what one thousand three or no where is it three I think it was three thousand news publications around the world many of the biggest publications there are major contributors so are all the oil companies so are all the defense companies there so are all the pharmaceutical companies they're all major contributors to all of the mainstream corporate press yeah yeah i think you're right though i think your 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 bigger point is is like really important that we we're under this delusion to some extent that it was ever any different with the mainstream media going back even to the 1800s. And I think that's totally right. I think there was, I think part of the reason we get that delusion is that there was this period of such immense, immense, um, <clears throat> there was a period of such immense economic prosperity during the 60s and 70s that the, they could afford to relax their, relax their control of the media a little bit and you get bits and pieces of like of that. So like if you read um, something that Chris Hedges talks talks a lot about. So Chris Hedges um, was a journalist, and he was the bureau chief for the New York Times, uh, Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times in the eighties and nineties. And he, um, or maybe it was even up to the early aughts, actually, in, in the nineties, um, leading up to the Iraq War. And um, his, he comes, you know, he comes from a small town in Maine and from a working class background. And so his observation, I think Matt Taby has also made the exact same observation. Matt Taby, also the son of a journalist, um, also works as a journalist. Both have pointed out that the default uh, demographic profile of a journalist in the, from World War II up to the kind of like mid mid aughts was middle class as opposed to upper middle class to, to upper class, which is the default profile now of the typical journalist. So like, and what's really tricky about it too, and I know we've, we've chatted about this before is that that gets so cloaked by even like the, I think even like hipsterness is used to cloak that. So yes. for example, vice, vice is, has the veneer of the hipster, you know, of the of the beard and the tattoo, hipster, but the demographic profile is this kind of neo neoliberal or neoconservative upper middle class to upper class, um, small liberal arts college, <laughs> in other words, private expensive university, um, and that's kind of a shift that makes it feel like, oh, well, maybe there was this idealistic time when then a middle-class journalist who went to Kansas State um, had the opportunity to do great investigative reporting. And I think there's something to that for like a few decades, like some of those people slipped through, but I don't think they ever had anything close to control of the media narrative. I mean, look at the look at the mainstream media, even during that, that time period, as you say, the the escalation of the war in Vietnam wasn't uh, de- 
decried as, as, as it should have been. It wasn't objected to fiercely as it should have been. It was, uh, it was outrageous, right? Because it set the precedent that presidents start wars without the de facto approval of Congress, which is kind of like Caesar crossing the Rubicon. You can't do it, that. It is Caesar crossing. It, actually, I uh, this is something I want to unpack more uh, as my like project goes on. But I think that Johnson is the first imperial president. Like I, I think that it, that is a, mm -hmm. a Caesar crossing the Rubicon moment um, in more ways than one, which I won't fully go into because I'll just keep my response to media this time. Um, but mm -hmm. no, I think you know Tybee makes a great point of you know when it came from Watergate and Deep Throat and how these journalists, you know, celebrity journalists, after they were played by you know. Um, What's his name? Robert Redford and uh, what was the other the all the President's Men movie? It was Robert Redford and I can't think of his name. He was in Tootsie too. What's his name? The actor's name. I know who you're talking about, but I can't think of his name. I can't think of his name. Anyways, Robert Redford and the other guy, um, and they the celebrity of journalists, right? So then all of a sudden he started attracting more people. But you know, back in the day, uh, like Woodward and Birdstein didn't have. I don't. I think maybe one of them was a college graduate. You know, and, and either way, like most journalists weren't even college graduates. It was something that it was a job that it was seen as grinding it out, not, you know, not necessarily something that you go to school for and have this like proper way of going about and doing, um, which I yeah. think, you know, the distinction I would make is editors used to have to be more in control and then eventually have to cave for stories. So editors back then were the more tapped into the funding tapped into who owns the paper tapped into you know okay well like you if you run this hit piece on that senator he's on the arms committee and we're not going to get any information from that anymore or if you mm. you know write something bad about this the access right so like you know the five filters you know of in noam chomsky's manufactured consent you know the funding wasn't as much of a problem because of you know newspapers back then were more independent and they were subscribed to more of the readers were paying for it right um right. But, you know, also to your point, economically, there was more of a middle class. People were doing better. Um, so more of the group think within the nation was more like, ah, well, if you're telling me we have to do this extrajudicious thing, maybe I'll go along with it because things are going pretty well. And if you're saying in order for things to keep going well, we have to do that. Like, I'll, I'll give you some lead on that. Um, so I think the group think mm -hmm. within the nation was one of more of American exceptionalism, which bought some of these motives we're seeing more today, rather obviously. Um, it bought that some uh, some lead, I suppose, in, in the actions that Americans would tolerate. Um, and then, you know, but more now, like, it almost is as if editors and corporate owners of these papers don't have to care as much about policing what is published and not published because of the groupthink. Yeah. So they're all coming from the same group of universities that are all taught roughly the same things. Um, that all have roughly the same political ideologies. And, you know, it's kind of like Barry Weiss leaving the New York Times because everyone else around her was calling her crazy. Um, it, the, you don't have to police it. You don't have to be like, you know, this is what you should think about Ukraine because they already think it. It's already in their, in their zeitgeist, right? It's already their status quo, their default setting, their you know, default way of thinking, um, which is unfortunate because it just means that the propaganda class is ideologically different than I would say mainstream, actual mainstream, actual 
main consciousness of Americans. I think it's quite devoid from it. Um, however, they do mm-hmm. still have some control at the margins of being able to stamp out discourse by just flooding it, to your point, flooding it with information. And, you know, if the yeah, same companies, yeah. the same companies that run the media or the same companies that, you know, the same boards and the same capital is the same in tech companies, which is the same in, you know, pharmaceutical companies. And that just means you can control the message yeah. on anything because <clears throat> um, you can, you know, you control the, at least the main allowed narrative on those places. I, I think the world is becoming more decentralized, honestly. I think it's just harder to see because how do you quantify if there's a hundred different things going on as opposed to there's, you know, two or three things happening on these main channels. Um, but I think because of that, right. it's, it's the truth of the moment is, is the paradox, which is, you know, it's never been more obvious to see there's propaganda. There's never been more propaganda. It's never been harder to distinguish what is and isn't because I mean, Stephen Colbert is my favorite uh, propaganda arm of the United States government because of it's like, well, and, and by the United States government, I guess I'm really meaning the corporate backers of the Democratic Party, um, as well as the same corporate backers of Stephen Colbert, they're the same group of people. So he'll come out and, yeah. and, and do like outrageous things, uh, like saying, uh, you know, I'll pay a few more bucks a gallon at the gas pump if it means supporting freedom. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, then ending the, ending the joke with, uh, but I don't, I won't have to worry about paying the gas. Cause I drive a Tesla. It's like, you drive a hundred thousand dollar car and you're, you're, you're saying to people who are yeah. living paycheck to paycheck, you know, pay an extra 20 bucks every time you fill up your gas tank. Cause you're paying for Ukrainian freedom. Like what the fuck? Um, so the, it, the co-option of the, um, the, the, the late night and comedians who do news by by um, mainstream media has been amazing. It's been like so complete. This is so, they did such an amazing job of just co-opting all of them. I mean, Colbert is the prime example, right? Like the leader of that. But all the SNL people too, they're all just- But I think that's all grief think though. I think it's, okay, so like, I think it's just them hiring the people that would go for those jobs. And it's just changing changing the blood out enough. You know what I mean? It's, it's, It's killing- the cells in your body again and replacing it with new ones so much to the point where the organism is completely different and it's just it's perpetuating in such a way like you know they hired Stephen yeah. Colbert because he's him ideologically is probably close enough to them so that any maybe he doesn't even have the moral thoughts of should I do this or should I not do this and furthermore even if he did he's gonna give the discounting that they want because you know what I mean they're hiring the people that they want they're hiring the people that will you know, make Joe Rogan horse pill jokes on SNL. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, go on and make jokes about how, you know, crazy it was that we were wearing masks. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Like, that's a complete ideological shift you just did. Um, And and you can see it as them testing the water and being like, clearly they're playing with their messaging because they're about to start changing it because, you know, politically they're seeing that, that the runway is running on that. But to the audience, if you're not really paying attention, it just, it's it's snl it's what do you mean it's, it's not propaganda it's snl it's like ah well yeah right about that right yeah yeah so yeah i think yeah it's 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 like um i want sometimes you wonder right? like you wonder do these people are do they have any idea like amy schumer you know hollywood comedian proposing to invite Zelensky to do a video 
appearance at the Oscars. Do they have any idea how ridiculous that is? Do they have, I mean, I think that's an extreme case, so yes. But I didn't know that was happening. Speaking, that's hilarious. Yeah, I mean, I, it's just, yeah, right? Like that's so outrageous. Like what on so many levels, that's that's an outrage. But but like, um, like do, do they know that they are divorced from mainstream consciousness because it seems like they are and i'm talking about the um the the stephen colbert's and the trevor noah's and the what's his name the other guy from snl that has a late night kind of news show um it doesn't seem like they do like it doesn't it doesn't i mean i, I think it's the same the thing, same thing is true the average editorialist at the washington post or new york times um cnn i don't think they really understand that um, they're, I don't, I don't think they perceive themselves, most of them perceive themselves as being propagandists, but it looks from the outside perspective, it looks so clear that that's what they are. I, I don't, I don't know if they, I think they're, I think it's difficult when you're in that position to see it. I think there's so much reinforcement. There's so much messaging coming into your head 24 seven throughout, throughout your day. I, I don't think you can get the perspective you need to get some self-understanding. I think that's the same. They're, they're dealing with the same problem that they're propagating, which is that there's an avalanche of disinformation and it's just the physical demand on your time it takes to actually sift through it. It's, um, it's difficult. It's really, it's really difficult. It really is. It really is devolving into info wars, <laughs> which is... <laughs> You know, um, credit to credit to Alex Jones for that choice of brand name because it that is that is a good name. I mean, it is it is a good theme. <laughs> and, I think you saw uh, it coming beforehand. Jones, of Honestly, I think you saw it coming. The guy's that guy's crazy, and he, he might be a schizophrenic. Um, but I think he saw it coming because mm -hmm. it, it, even if you like like dude, people people think he's like this lauded conservative. But I went back and watched some of his stuff from the Iraq War. And it's fascinating. Like he was like really against invading Iraq and really against invading Afghanistan even. And some of the things he was saying were very pointed. Um, and I mean, before the Sandy Hook thing, he used to go on CNN, which I didn't realize. I didn't realize that up until like fairly recently, he would like go on all the mainstream. Yeah, like go just do just YouTube him appearing on it. Um, there's like, he was going on like, pretty much up until a year before that Sandy Hook stuff, um, which is wow, fascinating. And that's like a complete like yeah. you know, expunging of the record kind of thing. Um, but, you know, like I, well, first off, I, I can't get too far without talking about Shakespeare ever. Um, and, you know, like Romeo and Juliet is uh, written as a comedy, except for the timing. It's so, like everything about Romeo and Juliet is a comedy except for that moment that you would usually have like the punchline is when tragedy happens. So like right up until okay. Tybalt gets killed, if, like that's a great scene. Um, and right up until he gets killed, it's like a joke. And it's almost like this, like, you know, fanciful, like, ba -da -ba -ba -ba. and then all of a sudden it's like, Oh my God, he just died. Like you actually did kill him. Like this did just, <laughs> just send. Okay. That, right. Right. Um, like Mercutio the whole time yeah. is just like, is just, just telling jokes, right? Like he's this like, joke character right he's almost like a false staff or something um 
and and you know the the nurse the maid right the white nurse of of Juliet is just like is is everything is it's it's set up as a comedy except for the moment that usually you'd have comedic relief with the laughter you get hit with tragedy and I feel like that our world that we live in is more and more like that where like Zelensky getting asked yeah. to go to the Oscars sounds like something from the Simpsons like that's hysterical like what but then like when yeah. you realize like no this is actually happening it's like oh my god you just hit me with tragedy instead of being me being and have the real right. of laughter um right right and dude I, I mean like I'm trying to train myself to think of everything as systems. And if I'm looking at this from like a systems lens, um, I think Upton Sinclair's, you know, it's hard to get a man to see something of which his salary depends on him not seeing. Right. I think that's part of it. I think also the system selecting for Hollywood folks that won't buck the status quo quo because they want to be, you know, a part of the mainstream and loved and liked. And, you know, I think there's a fair amount of vanity going on with that. Um, and also, I mean, like in order to get good at being in Hollywood is not the same tools as being good at understanding complexity and nuance and history and human behavior, because like, okay, I don't think that, um, Putin wants an empire in the way that we think of empire, which is like Rome, the empire should know no bounds. Like we're going to conquer the world. Right. Like that is the way we think mm-hmm. about it in the Europe, right? In the European plateau, because I don't think Europe's a continent, but I won't go into there. Um, so like, you know, that's the way that we just default think about it. What Russia wants is he wants his own sphere of influence. And he's been saying that for 20 years now, right? right you know, he yeah. said that the greatest tragedy in, you know, the 20th century was the fall of the Soviet Union. And really what he meant by that is the fall of Russia's place as being seen as important and, you know, a stalwart within the world. So I think really what he's trying to do is saying like, hey, you, you know, we can have an economy the size of the state of Illinois and that's all well and good. Um, but guess what? Like if we don't play the rules of the game that you expect us to, we can still punch above our weight, which is brilliant. He is very smart. Like think of it like the norms ever since World War II is to, you know, uh, not just randomly invade countries unless you're the United States. Right. So right. I'm going to, I'm just going to say, fuck it. And 2014, I'm going to invade Crimea. And, you know, what was it? 2008, he invaded Georgia. So I mean, like, he's just saying like, ah, whatever, I'm going to have these little like skirmishes. Um, and John Kerry in 2014 said like, oh, wow, we were surprised by that. That was, you know, very 20th century. Um, and it's like, no, it's not like that's human behavior for 20,000 years. Like, what do you, ta- what do you mean? This is right. like, no, no, no. Like right. we, we haven't changed you have just allowed your reality to be a false perception of what's possible. And he's taking yeah. advantage of that because Russian skill has always been in the game is going this way. We're going to find smart ways to go around and trap you and force you to make the decisions we want you to make. And in doing so, we have yeah. an upper hand because Russians ever since, I mean, World War One, they were just throwing people at people with stones at machine gun turrets, right? It's, it's not like they've, they've right. never not been, you know, fighting from a period, uh, you know, having to punch up as far as like technologically and economically, they always have been, but yet we've talked about them for the past hundred years rather intently because we have to. So, I mean, Russia, the sense of like empire, like, no, 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 he wants to be taken seriously and he's going to do what he needs um, to do to be taken seriously. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it, 
the, the historical context is huge. And that's one of the, that's one of the things that struck me about his pre-invasion speech, the pre-Ukrainian invasion speech was the historical, he's really, really aware of the historical framework. He's, he really operates within a, a long, a sense of long history. And he, he gave a really interesting and detailed speech, which I think is pretty unusual for a world leader these days. Um, well, it is if you're so, from the but, West, if you're from the West. I mean, she gives it all the time. Yeah. Putin, Putin, like when you said 27 minutes, I was like, man, I wonder if we can get Biden just talk uninterrupted for 22 minutes. But anyways, keep going. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, but yeah, I mean, most it's stomach. Yeah. So, yeah, most speeches by major U.S. political figures in the 21st century have been terrible, really. Um, so, But where I was going with that is that I think one of the things that John Kerry was reacting to in the entire U.S. establishment is Putin puncturing a big hole in this concept of Pax Americana. There is no, there is no, it's such a ridiculous concept that it's, it's it, like, I, I actually was writing about this recently because I was writing about, I was writing about all these kind of, I was writing an article called The Economy of Fake Theories. And I was evaluating all these marketing and advertising theories. I, we talked about, we chatted to touch on this briefly that are, they're basically, it's not that they're, it's not that they're, they by themselves are fake or untrue. It's just that they're not scientific theories, right? They're not like the, the theory of the unique spelling proposition is that human beings can only remember one thing. Is there a scientific research to support that? No, there's none. The guy who invented the theory was an ad executive and he thought it sounded cool. And if you asked him why, he said it's common sense. That's hilarious. <laughs> and he retired a multimillionaire. So, um, so I think Pax Americana is that same kind of, it sounds, it's just, it's when a, when a theory has a catchy enough name, beware, because that is a very catchy name. It's, it's a great reference to the Roman Empire. It's, it's got the word peace in it. It's got the word Roman in it by implication. And it's got the word America in it. So it just sounds fantastic. And it's total bullshit. I mean, it's the, so the, the level of war and violence under the so-called Pax Americana is just astounding. It's like the worst name ever. I mean, if anything- well, Actually, I think it's anything, quite- If anything, go ahead, finish that. And if anything, there's a, there's a Pax Chinesia or, or Pax China, if anything. But I don't think I don't even think you can make that argument. You certainly no, can't make can. the argument for it at Pax Americana. No, well, I think you can, but it's just it's just how do how how do you define peace? Because I think the Pax yeah. Americana is actually perfect. Um, I think it's perfect because of its calling back to Rome, and not just because I'm I'm geeking on it. I'm I'm like looking at like my bookshelf of like half Roman shit right now. Um, so like no, but I think it's 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 necessary for so many dimensions like that one you know phrase sums up so much like it sums up ties to rome it sums up the idea of empire it sums up the idea of exceptionalism it sums up the idea of hubris um, it sums up the idea of just like western thought in general um and then really what it means like was it tacitus um who said uh the romans leave a desert and call it peace. So like, that is what it is. I don't know, but I okay, like so it. I, no, it's it's one of the, the reference to sowing the sowing salt in Carthage. It's a reference to just how it's reference to Pax Romanus, which which is 
where mm-hmm. Pax Americana comes from, which is the fact that, um, okay, well, it also, all right, I think you can't do this without also talking about how does war start? If you're talking about you're, you're, you're solving the war through peace, what is it that you're, you know, uh, starting? And, and the Romans and the Americans, they even, even historians, when they talk about America, use the same phrase, which is casus belli. And casus belli is the, the cause for war, the cause for conflict, right? Yeah. So like the Romans would, so they, they had this thing with, throughout the traditions of Rome, which was, um, look, we're, we are we are the new type of civilized, right? We don't care where you come from. You come to Rome, you can be a Roman, right? So, all right, I understand. Even Kamala that. Harris? Oh my God, let's not even go down that door. Because uh, okay. she, she could she could have been a Roman. She could have been a Roman uh, leader. Be, she, I don't think so. She <laughs> you, it requires some skill to actually be able to talk and think uh, at the same time. Right. Anyways, uh. So like you needed a cause for it. And if it, there was no cause for it and you just started a war, it was seemed as being, you know, immoral and the gods would smite you. So what they would do is they'd mm-hmm. make a bullshit causes for war, which is very much what the U.S. has done forever. You make a bullshit causes for war. Yeah. You know, in Mexico, the Mexican-American War is a great example. They just kept stationing troops on the other side of the Rio Grande until eventually they charged at the troops. And it's like, oh, well, you... You charge that us, we're gonna, you know, go go to war with you now. And it's like, well, you parked your right. troops on the other side of the border, man. Um, but that was enough of a cause for us to say, okay, we're gonna go to war now. Um, yeah. And then, in from going to war, you then would bring peace by slaughtering everybody and demanding these like ridiculous tributes um, and create these client states, yeah. which eventually, you know, some would get absorbed into the empire as new provinces and other of them would be intentionally like we're never going to do that because we just want you as cannon fodder to have buffer between us and the the barbarians and how they would bring about peace is by destroying everything and layering laying everything barren because the romans were notorious for we're going to go to war we're going to go to war with everything and we're not going to take any prisoners except for the slaves that we take but before then we're just going to steal and slaughter everything right which is in the same way that the America does it, except for instead of pillaging, it's dropping bombs, right? So I would say that mm-hmm. Pax, Pax Americana is great because of the fact that that's what we do. We we leave yeah. a city in <clears throat> rubble with you know bombs and drone strikes and you know casualties, and we don't talk about those things. We just turn around and walk away, and we say, "God, did we do a good job? We're doing great." Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's all about how you define PAX. Um, yeah. Yeah, certainly. And part of it, part of it too, part of the convenience for the U.S. is their, their, um, their geographic remoteness from a lot of the, the, the PAX that they create. <laughs> yeah, it's, yes. um, there, but there's some, there's some like blowback, like we have, you know, massive immigration problems somewhat directly related to Pax Americana in Central America, um, Central American wars and instability and poverty that directly affects us. But, and we certainly have, yeah, we have a a destabilized neighbor to the South. So there's, you know, it's getting, it's getting a little closer, but generally speaking, it's, it's uh, usually tends to be fairly remote and separated by oceans. which uh, is convenient. It was Tacitus, by the way, that said the... It was Tacitus. Yeah. It's a good quote. So they make it, they make a desert and call it peace and they being the Romans. 
It, it reminds me of what I, I learned about, I don't know if it was Augustus or Caesar that, that in the battle with Hannibal and Carthage, which was really amazing because Hannibal took elephants into Europe and Hannibal was apparently a brilliant person and you know he had a lot of he had a lot of things going for him but he was defeated and part of the defeat was that Rome went and supposedly dumped salt in the fields around Carthage so they, they literally turned Carthage into a desert I mean it probably already was partially a desert but but um they did yeah, that, and then um, a few years later, like 20 years later, they found a new Carthage on pretty much the exact same spot because it was just too geographically important. I think uh, they, they right. probably okay. did that, but it was a port city. Anyways, like the real beauty of Carthage was that it was just really centrally located in the Mediterranean, and you know you could get uh, ships in and out, and it had an amazing port. Um so they actually, the Romans ended up how finding New Carthage, which ended up being, at points in time, more wealthy than Rome, which is why when Caesar, um, ah, like Gaius right. Julius Caesar, one of his last battles before the um, Pax Romanus with the Civil War, uh, was fought in New Carthage. Um, remember that the uh, the famous speech where he he refers, you know, he stands up to the legionnaires who are saying like, we don't want to fight for fight anymore. We want to. Uh, you know get our money that you, you owe us in our land and we want to call it a day and um mm -hmm. instead of calling him calling them his soldiers he stood up and said uh he referred to them as citizens um which was like a huge blow to them because they're like we love you we're your soldiers and instead of you know referring to them as his legionnaires first which is how he always did he referred to them as citizens first and then razzle the troops to oh, go yeah. uh invade carthage um, which is it was actually New Carthage at the time, which is where uh, Cicero was, and then Cicero ended up committing suicide um, there. Ah, interesting. Interesting, huh? Yeah, the funny thing too is that the Romans didn't consider North Africa uh, outside of Europe. Ah, because the time it wasn't. Um, right, right. Yeah, it was Europe was a. Europe has has a shifting as a concept has shifted throughout history, right? It's been mm -hmm. it was certainly like very much like a Mediterranean shore based geographic entity. Yes, it was. Well, Mediterranean There's... shore going in through east to the borders of India, because Persia was mm -hmm. practically like Persia was seen as other, but I mean, economically and technologically wise, it was. Undis indistinguishable from the rest of the Mediterranean for most of the time that we think about the West. Uh, right. You know what else is interesting about about that that little piece of historical narrative where uh, the <clears throat> the the choice of wording from soldier to citizen kind of changed the relationship and changed the sense of obligation and did so much and really what what happened well um a roman leader spoke and just based on words like just the word like small word choice made such a huge difference it was such a it's such an interesting metaphor for 
because in those days that was that was one of the I guess forms of mass communication was public speeches, right? You could, if you could speak to a few hundred people, that 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 constituted mass communication. Because you mentioned Cicero living in Carthage, and one of my favorite Cicero quotes is when um, I think it's when Aeschylus spoke, the people said he speaks very well. When Demosthenes spoke, the people said. Let us march against Philip. Megan, Megan, I, I know, I've, I know, I've shared that with you before, but it's such a it's such a powerful concept. Like he, he just, it's not that he was a good speaker; it's that he could actually move people. He could move people to do things. He could inspire people to do things, and I mean that is, that's that's so powerful. It's so important. That's so important to it. I mean, I think, like if you look at what strategy is. The missing piece to strategy usually is that inspiration piece where you really compel people to want to do something instead of just saying, this is what makes sense. It's like, uh, it's a really, um, it's really amazing that we are, <laughs> we're so compelled, we're so inspired, I mean, to hit on this point again, because this is what's happening in, in our world, but we're so inspired to be so warlike and to be so <laughs> careless with a nuclear holocaust. Oh my god, yeah. What the fuck? Well, you know, when I was um the episode that um I dropped right before this one's going to go about China, you know, Chinese external propaganda and I was asking you like about your definition of propaganda cuz I appreciate how much you're mm -hmm. like literally building your own dictionary and, and how much you you value that and think about that. Um yeah, I really appreciate that about you. And I knew you would have something that would be interesting. Um, and I was thinking about it when I was writing that intro essay. And I actually completely rewrote the intro message to that um, a few times. And, and I kind of wrote it like probably 10 minutes before I recorded that. Um, and it completely changed everything because I was trying to think, you know, I was, I was doing research, like, you know, what's the oldest known, you know, document to propaganda. And it was like, you know, thousands of years ago you know, um, from like a king essentially giving out false truths to, to try to rouse a, a merchant base, I believe is what it was. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. And I was thinking about that. And then it struck me and I was like, oh my God, I know way more about propaganda in the ancient world than I thought about. Because, I mean, I, I think I can make a case that there are two people in history. Well, okay now that I'm thinking about it, I think I can think of hundreds of people in history that were unbelievable in their ability to spread propaganda. Um, if I was to take one, that's like, I mean, I think, I mean, I think Paul is a great prop propagandist mm -hmm. in the spreading of the gospels. <laughs> uh, you know, right, uh, right. and Winston Churchill is an amazing example and he didn't even shy away from it because he said, you know, uh, I know how I will be um, perceived in history because I'm going to write it. Um, but it's Julius Caesar. Like Gaius Julius Caesar is probably outside of some religious fellows, the most effective purveyor and creator of propaganda ever. I mean, first off, we still remember yeah. him and we remember him because well, he, of the myth he created. He wrote a while great he book, was, right? He wrote several, but here's the thing. Like <laughs> he wrote 
he wrote like like we've talked about this because it's used um it's used in, in learning latin which is his adventures in gaul like his adventures and adventures in gaul were completely illegal and from the moment he started doing them okay so from context gaul is france france is gaul okay it's, it's the way to think about it it's the same there france is the size of texas it's an enormous area caesar is stationed and given you know Gaius julius caesar is given command um in gaul but it's not it's about half of france it's about like if you were to take like a diagonal of you know bordeaux down uh in a diagonal like yeah. 45 degrees that's about what gaul was so like half of texas yeah. was still like a, a state half you know an area half the size of texas was still greater not, normandy exactly was still not in their control so like where paris is now that area was not under control so he just started seeing a lot of refugees come over because the gallic people were getting forced out from the germans and he just made up a, a casus belli a reason for war to just go slaughter them all and he killed on the con conservative estimates are a million people more likely two and a half if you include like women children and elderly and all of that um wow. and he it wasn't popular like people in rome didn't want that especially the ruling elite did not want this war because they didn't think that it had proper cause um and their whole thing mm -hmm. was it needs proper cause so he wrote these impeccable documents like explaining like because of him his genocide of, of gaul and most other western writers um and cultures in that time kind of looked at them as the other and it is so weird that they wouldn't even document about it the best record of what we yeah. have of what the gallic people are <clears throat> like is caesar describing the people he's killing and he he mm -hmm. turned the public opinion because he wrote so plainly and so pointedly and so simply right uh, which is also why it's used as learning latin he had a wide audience where people would stand up on yeah. blocks and your mass communication thing is going to make me think for a while because people would stand up in blocks and read caesar's messages so the populace was all for what he was doing because one he's writing these amazing travelogue stories and compelling narratives of what he's doing while at the mm -hmm. same time, he's sending back massive amounts of money, gold, and these strange-looking guys in chains, right? So he's, he's sending back all this treasure. He's expanding the empire. He's creating a new myth of what it means to be Roman and what it means to, like, expand Roman yeah. sphere while yeah. putting himself at the center of it, right? So he did, like, that is one of the most effective pieces of propaganda ever because if it wasn't for that, there would be would be no empire in the way that happens because of octavian which is his adopted son and nephew right because octavian augustus is really the one who set up the empire but without caesar there would be no empire right so um that piece is 100 the reason i mean like caesar crosses the rubicon because he comes from the gallic region you know with his 12th legion and crosses the rubicon and yeah. all of a sudden it becomes the civil war like he's coming so like this propaganda he wrote is the whole reason that the civil war popped off when it did i think the civil war was inevitable but i won't get into that um and then furthermore when he was fighting the civil war it wasn't as popular as you, you we, we perceive it would be right and as he's fighting it it was known and like talked about how caesar would be riding in a chariot going from one logistical station to another with two scribes below him and telling them what what to write 
and one would be writing one piece of propaganda or like letter um, or like narration of what's happening. And then the other one would be writing opposite. So he'd be writing letters to people constantly. And then the other side, he'd be yeah. narrating his travels. Um, and because he was such an effective wielder of this propaganda is why he was able to be so effective. Um, and the same can yeah, be it's said a brilliant, with Stalin. It's a brilliant thesis. I mean, it, it makes perfect sense. I mean, it's it's a really, I think it's, yeah, it's, I think it's, I think it'd be interesting to look at it, you know, from the context of what, you know, of propaganda as a model of communication, political communication, you know, where manufacturing consent is one propaganda model and define what Caesar's propaganda model was. Certainly it had a lot to do with, um, had a lot to do with, you know, what we call, what we call othering, but I think that's inadequate to, to the task of describing what he was doing in terms of dehumanizing or anti-Romanizing Gallic people. Certainly had to do with what you just mentioned, the, um, his use of scribes, so his use of, his use of a literate, semi-literate public. Um, well, he's, the he convention the, of public criers. Mm -hmm. He set up the concept of a noble savage. There was probably already a concept there, but the way that we think of like the noble savage in the Amer you know, North America with that genocide is the way mm -hmm. that he talked about the Gallic people, which is one of the first times that that's ref. Well, not really. I guess all of civilization kind of looked at indigenous people like that. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Titus also talked about Germanic peoples like that and was credited with. Well, yeah, that's what Caligulus, Caligulus is the uh, Germanic tribeman who in Tacitus's story is the one who says the Romans leave a desert and call it peace. So yeah, Tacitus said uh, that. Right. I think Tacitus came after. No, was he before? When was Tacitus alive? I'm gonna look it up. Um, but yeah, so the, it's it's interesting. It's, yeah, he it's was a, after. It's he was a great after Caesar. theory. He's after Caesar. Yeah, fifty. He lived at fifty-six um, AD. Because what he had to do is he had to he had to like betray really really powerful conventions right he had to betray the convention of the need for um casus belli and um he had to uh, probably other things too that we're not maybe not completely aware of for example it could have been that there was actually some communication and trade with gallic peoples and people knew that they weren't like animals so he had to betray that well that knowledge and there was so like in the part of Gaul that he was the you know the provincial governor of um the distinction that he makes in the writings and was the I mean Cicero even talks about it too um is that there was the uh yeah Gauls that were you know outside of the Roman you know Roman Gaul and then there was the Gauls inside of Roman Gaul and the way that they made the distinction between the two is it was Gallic people and toga wearing Gauls. And they would talk about how the yeah. toga wearing Gauls, you know, were the Gallic people that kept their long blonde hair, um, but started drinking wine and wearing togas. Uh, right. Okay. And also, like the other thing too is that in the ancient world, this is something I think about a lot lately, actually, um, is that the ancient world didn't think of races. They thought about birthplace and cultural adoption. 
So like if you were, mm -hmm. I mean, so like think of it as like a gall. <clears throat> if you were born, a, if you were like uh, genetically a Gallic person born in Rome, you would be quite a bit taller than everybody. And you would probably have straight blonde hair where most of the other people have mm -hmm. like dark, you know, wavy hair and were quite a bit shorter than you. I mean, you probably would be as conservatively a foot taller because there a lot of the Gauls were like I six see. foot tall, right? And most Romans yeah. were like five, five, right? So like you conservatively yeah. easily could be a fit taller than everybody. Um, but if you talked like a Roman, spoke Greek, um, you know, were educated in the cultural norms, they wouldn't look at you as any different. They would look at you as a Roman. I see. Um, it, it, yeah. They don't have the concept of like race and things like that. Where the toga wearing Gauls were still, you know, probably speaking with, you know, Latin with an accent. And uh, they talked about how mm -hmm. they would get drunk all the time. Because in Rome, it was looked down upon to be like outwardly showing that you were intoxicated. You were supposed to be reserved about that, except for on days of festival and all that. So this is the origin of the French people, the toga, the toga, toga wearing drink, wine drinking Gauls. Yeah, I mean, it really is, the, right? the Franks kind of mess it all up, though, because like the interesting thing about Europe, the European plateau to me is like how much the regions of land just completely get obliterated. And then you don't think about it like, um, I mean, Anatolia, which is modern day Turkey used to be fair-haired, fair-skinned people uh, speaking Greek. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, after the, the, you know, Moorish and Ottoman invasion, it's, it's, it's completely different makeup, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> not, it's not at right. all, it doesn't look at all look like what it is. Or North Africa, like, you know, Morocco used to be, you know, Greek-looking people, right? It, Morocco isn't really right. like that now. Um, uh, and in and, and France, that region It of is France, in very small pockets, like the, the Rift it Mountains. It is. It's still there. Or the uh, yeah. Atlas Mountains, the Rifiana people. But yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's funny how um, it's, it, it's, it's funny how it's such a different paradigm to like um, to, to favor. It's, it just seems so retrograde that we put so much emphasis on categorization according to external appearance now that we might not have done like thousands of years ago. Like what, what, what's, where, where, where's the human progress in that spectrum? Because <laughs> that's, that's kind of depressing, right? Well, it was necessary for the idea of a nation state. Yeah. You know, a nation state is. The a, idea of race. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It was a very, is a very um, useful tool in building a nation state. I mean, nation states are. Yeah. Right. New, right. And how do you categorize right. me as different from somebody else? Well, let's find distinctions and draw parallels because, you know, innately we as humans are are prejudiced tribal folk. So how can you expend a tribe to be the size yeah. of Texas um, without it having? I mean, because like, I mean, really, like taxes is the way for most of time how, you know, nations were you know put together. Or like I've I've been reading about Prussia recently. And how like Prussia was an empire that had two two portions that weren't connected directly, and how that's like such a mm -hmm. wild idea to us. You know what I mean? Like it's wild to me that Michigan has a you know the Isn't Upper Peninsula that is you know outside of the contiguous part of it. 
Um, and that's just a, yeah. a state that makes absolutely no fucking sense uh, as a concept, let alone, you know, an empire, um, you know, and, and <laughs> right. you know, nation states are new. They're new concepts. I think they're stupid concepts. Um, but, yeah, like they needed whatever they they needed, whatever they could muster to define themselves as valid entities vis-a-vis -vis what the, the kind of big, huge long-standing elephant in the room, which was formerly the Roman Empire, and then kind of echoes of the Roman Empire with the Eastern, Eastern you know, so like the, like the, the Holy Roman, the quote-unquote Holy Roman Empire, which basically is Germania, this is right. German-speaking, German which is basically Charlemagne having, not being able to pass on Charlemagne kind of unifying most of Western Europe and then that never being reconciled among his um, among his uh, the people that came after him, his sons and the other the, the other people that came after him. They could never reconcile that. And in a sense, what became the nation states of France and Germany, which took a long time to happen, it's, it's almost like the sons of Charlemagne like fighting each other. Like for all these years, even World War Two and World War One can be seen as echoes of just Charlemagne's sons, like not being able to um, work out an accord or an agreement. But yeah, like um, I, I find it ridiculous when I read English writers that talk about the French race. I'm like, what do you, what are you talking about? How is the, what do you mean the French race? How is that any different from the English? Or they say the the, the the Welsh race, the Welsh race? Are you kidding me? It's like it's like people that are 20, 20 miles over that are a different race that look exactly the same as you. Um, I think it's it is a totally contrived concept, and it makes sense that it's it was needed to to validate the concept of of nation state. Now look how powerful nation states are, but now they're being challenged by corporations, and so now. Um, I think corporations are, are we gonna are we state. gonna go back to are we gonna go back to when one thing that caught that struck that strikes me re-listening to the the odyssey is the power of the convention the social conventions and how much how much it ruled people's lives and how sacrosanct those they were as like laws and rules especially hospitality a lot of the plot the plots of the odyssey which is basically a collection of short stories revolve around hospitality and how that affects like people traveling and and well, so like the oristea that's what it's about and uh yeah i mean oedipus that whole trilogy is about hospitality to even be hospitable right. to somebody who is so egregious as to have murdered their mother and you know bred with their or murdered their father and bred with their mother right so so but the but the nation state, the nation state comes in with, you know, the you know it's using using various using various building blocks. Probably the biggest building block was Enlightenment rationalism, colonialism, um, colonialism. Colonialism. I think the biggest building, sure. yeah, building right, block was right. colonialism. And what what is so like, uh, what sponsors colonialism? Corporations. But they weren't considered corporations then, but they still existed. Just because the idea of a corporation didn't exist doesn't mean that the Dutch East India Company wasn't a corporation, nor does it mean that 
you know, Venetian merchants weren't acting as corporations or, you know, if you want to go back before right. that, like Roman expeditionary forces. Or, or the, or the Hanseatic League, if you're reading about Prussia, you might've ran into the Hanseatic League. I, I, I briefly, sort of a yeah. Corporation. Yeah, no, they, no, they existed. Um, like the, these type of things existed in paramilitary forces as well as like merchant uh, trade kind of, you know, pseudo organizations. Yeah, totally. Like the, like the Hanseatic League had a huge compound in London with like 3000 people living there and they had their own security and everything. I didn't know that. It was like wow. a kind of semi semi autonomous like you know zone. Well, the Knights Templar yeah. also were a pretty explicit banking corporation, right? Ah, uh, right. That's right. That's right. They help they help finance the um, the Crusades, right? Well, the their biggest Crusades. their heyday was after the Crusades, though, because what their big thing was, if you deposit money in any of the Knights Templar banks, you can go to any other of the Knights Templar banks and withdraw it. Because their big thing, like how that came out, was right. people depositing money and then withdrawing it when they're getting close to the Holy Land. Um, and but the, what they ended up doing was, you know, leveraging that money to have essentially a banking cartel, um, which was operating right. in a very similar way to the way we were talking about operating corporations. So, um, such as to say, like that organization of humans organizing for capital, which is really what corporations are has been around for, you know, it's ancient in just its current form, Right, it's operating the way it is. But really my way of challenging what you were saying is that I think the concept of a nation state and it's intertwining with corporations was probably inevitable. And it probably already was there before it transformed into its current form. Um, it's just looked at more, it, we just see it differently now, I suppose, because things, I, I'm more and more thinking that human behavior and what, you know, comes out of it in our reality hasn't changed. It just is different. <laughs> you know, like we are still tribal. We still, you know, have prejudice. It's still useful to us in certain ways. We just find different ways to lie to ourselves to say that this certain, this existing permutation of the life and the world around us is somehow different when really it's like, nah, we've been doing this shit forever. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I was trying to draw a distinction between organically derived customs that are passed on from generation to generation, such as the custom of hospitality in the Odyssean world and the police and military backed customs of the nation state, the nation state. So like, if you can like so currency fiat currency is backed by nation states which are backed which their teeth is the police the prisons and the military um so against that backdrop the odyssean hospitality tradition doesn't have as much power as it might have had at one time because like Chomsky makes this point too about someone asked him whether um whether the European colonialization of the Americas represented the worst genocide in human history. And his response was that the nation state has never ever been anywhere close to as powerful as it is, has been during the 20th century. So the genocides during the 20th century are actually far greater because of the power behind them. There's so much more, there's so much more power for nation states to wield now than 
was even conceivable at that time. So all of that also is a really interesting backdrop for, for, for transitioning. I know you wanted to touch on Web3 um, because- I don't think we'll have time for it though. Maybe I, Web3 takes us, what's that? I don't think we'll have time to really unpack it, but I would love to hear where you're going. Well, I think maybe Web3 takes us back to social, well, literally social contracts is in the Web3 vocabulary, right? So maybe literally Web3 takes us back to the value of social contracts and human interaction and gets us away from um, guns and boots enforced contracts. Yes. I think right? it can. No, I really think it can. Yes. And I think the in order for the nation state to survive, it needs to degrade all other forms of tradition. It needs to degrade the cultural traditions because if it, if you're bonded any other way other than ways in which the nation state and its means of economy can control and influence, it's a threat to its existence because it's just an idea. And the idea really should be that the people that comprise that nation state can, can influence it to be suiting what they want, right? Which is most likely going to be peace and security and comfort. Um, and you know the mechanism to be able to grow and, and love but if you malform <laughs> that to be in something that's centralized in control, which is really what the nation state requires, you need to degrade all those different other connections. Um, and I think Web3, 100%, no, I right. completely agree with you. If it is, it is truly decentralized, <clears throat> you can have the framework to right. have exchange between anything and anyone. Um, and I, I do have to go in a minute, but I, I want to unpack that sure. on more. We should unpack that at a future time because I think it gives I think it gives wealthy individuals and organizations of individuals, DAOs are an obvious example, the opportunity to redistribute wealth if they choose to in a way that can't be censored. It's really difficult to stop that communication and you unless you're talking about shutting off electricity. So yeah, there is there is a lot to unpack there and I and I wonder we're talking so much about Rome. Like, I wonder how much Web3 can take us back to a world where social contracts have more, have a lot more influence over our lives, which could be a good and a bad thing. But um, that's, that's, I think it's an interesting subject. No, I would love to unpack that more. And maybe we can quickly schedule another one. And I won't uh, allow so much bracketing. And I'll keep on the subjects that I wanted to talk about, which we didn't even touch upon. <laughs> uh, and I was dying to make the German connection between Rome and a nation state and the Second Reich and yeah. being able to connect a group of people that, you know, had such disjointed well, different dialects of German uh, and connect them under the one. Yeah, a huge orange. part, huge part of, of Germania. Um, just fostering intercommunication among a previously disconnected massive group of people, um, you know, went far beyond uh, what the Knights Templars and the Hanseatic League did. We're talking about your average middle-class person being able to communicate with millions of other people like him. He doesn't have to be a part of a fancy league or, or secret society. So that had a huge impact, um, huge leveling impact, which had good and bad consequences, but we didn't get a chance to, we should, we should, we should, we should delve more into that because it's really interesting. Let's schedule it. Thank you so much. Uh, I want to debrief with you for one moment, but my bladder is, is screaming at me right now. So we can end it. There. Okay. <laughs>
Uh, thank you good, so much again, good, Rowan. Good. And let's do this again. My pleasure, John.